Hello and welcome to Step Into Light. I'm Laura Barton. And I'm Michelle Jones. This week we are covering Hebrews chapter 1 through 6 in the Come Follow Me manual, covering the dates of November 4th through the 10th, titled Jesus Christ, the Author of Eternal Salvation. So Michelle, when I opened up my Come Follow Me manual, there was our summary of the chapters, which Come Follow Me manual sometimes does an amazing job with these summaries. And as I read it, I read it like a couple times and I was really excited and I just really love this intro. So I would like to share an abbreviated version of the intro today. I mean, I think it's hard to top sometimes what a whole group of really inspired people have put together. Thanks, Michelle. So I support this plan. Let's do it. Okay. So it states as the intro to Hebrews 1 through 6, we all have to give up something in order to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the Hebrews, the Jews... It was their cherished beliefs and traditions, which were rooted in the worship of the true God and the teachings of his prophets, extending back thousands of years. Yet the apostles taught that the law of Moses had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and that a higher law was now the standard for believers. So the epistle to the Hebrews taught that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the ordinances are all important, but Jesus Christ is greater. In fact, all these things point to and testify of Christ as the Son of God and the promised Messiah the Jews have been waiting for. The message for the Hebrews and for all of us is that sometimes we must give up traditions to make Jesus Christ the center of our worship in our lives. Okay, so this introduction made me feel really smart because we've been talking about the higher law and the lower law for the last three weeks, and I was like, look at us! Laura and I. It's like they wrote Hebrews for us. Yeah, it's like they did that to validate our scripture reading experience. So, so I yes, really appreciated that. I'm excited to get into it today. And even though this was given to the Hebrews, we can see even for our time with President Nelson and the changes we're making that we may feel steeped in some traditions, but mm. these words of encouragement are for us in our day and time too. In fact, this is a group of people that President Uchtdorf would say, do not doubt your faith before you doubt your doubts, which is probably what Paul is feeling at this time. And we do say Paul, even though ancient historians were not quite sure who wrote this, I think it's generally been supported by our church modern day leaders that we can attribute much of this to Paul. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about the difference, because it does have a different, because one of the reasons why they say that is because it, it has a different voice, so to speak, from a literary perspective than what we've been reading up until now about Paul. But I thought interesting because, one, he's addressing the Jews, which is very different than his other audiences. But also it felt like, and I don't know if you felt this too, but it felt like the previous um books that we've been reading have been a lot more instructive like they both have instruction and testimony in them but it feels like that got flipped a little in the Hebrews at least the section that we are covering this week where it's a much larger percentage of Paul just this beautiful testimony of the Savior there is some instruction in there but it doesn't feel like it's the biggest part of this particular book well You'll have to let me know at the end of our conversation if you have that same feeling. Because I kept thinking this is literally um, him taking their traditions that were completely instructive and then talking about how the Savior has come to say that this is better. We have our good and our better and our best, but the best will always be the Savior. So in my mind, that is 
somewhat instructional, but we'll have to, you know, this is a two week process too. So I am wondering if maybe at the beginning he sets up a, something for us to learn about Nian too. So. And, and this is where I tell you that will be a complete surprise because I have not read ahead at all. Yes, I have. Well, I, I peeked ahead to chapter seven and it's all very exciting. It, this is all very okay. exciting to me because I do know that he is, okay, so I was excited. This intro was amazing, right? We're like, I, I just listened to it a few times. I was like, this is gonna be so fantastic. And it's Paul, and so I'm, I'm, I'm ready. And then I was like, oh, okay. So Paul, as a Pharisee, who knows the traditions of the Jews, can really dig deep into their traditions. And so if you're reading this for the first time, and you're kind of expecting it to be exactly like Michelle stated, we get a lot of references to the beginning of the Old Testament. We get a lot of rep references to Psalms. And so, and we get a lot of clarification about Jewish beliefs. And so you may get kind of feel a little bogged down in some of that tradition and those references. But right from the get-go, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 lets us know that Christ is the express image of Heavenly Father. And I just want to take a moment to state that as Christians, that is a great blessing that we have that sometimes we don't recognize um, and appreciate that we have our Heavenly Father and that He sent us His Son so that we know His nature. A lot of people throughout this world that are striving to find truth and look for good don't even have doctrine to turn to to know about the nature of God and to know that they can have actual a personal relationship with their Savior and to to understand those mysteries of God and so he specifically said that he sent his God, son to us and that we might know his express image in verse 3 it says the son in chapter 1 verse 3 the son is the radiance of God's glory and the character of his essence and he supports all things through the word of, of God's power. And so for us to be able to look to, the, to Christ as an example, an example of what we can do in our own lives and an example of what our Heavenly Father is truly like, to know that our Heavenly Father is that merciful and that loving and that um, kind and wants us all to be more like him is just in and of itself a truth that blesses our lives daily. Because one of the things that is interesting that many people have is this belief in a God. But I think you're right that to really understand, even within Christianity, I would say there's probably some differences in how people feel about God and how he feels about them. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I mean, that like our relationship with our heavenly parents can mirror what we're observing here in the scripture between God and the Savior, because that's an intimate relationship. He's his father. And the nature of that shows a level of care. And um, when I think about, say, my family, which is obviously, I'm not trying to say in any way that that's a model for what we're talking about here, but I will say that our level of intimacy in that we know each other so deeply we um, can respond and feel to each other in ways that people who were just strangers or casual acquaintances wouldn't be able to to respond to needs or to 
joys or to any of these things. And yet, I think part of what we're being taught here could be that we can consider um, our heavenly parents to be our parents in that there's an intimacy there and they know us and that they're there to know us better than anyone else would because they're our parents. And I love that you are using the word intimacy because I think that is specifically what the lesson that we can take out of this by chapter six. This, when you think of God of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, often people say that that is a God of vengeance and that there is an eye for an eye and there are consequences. And so to have Paul state that Christ has come and Christ is the best. It says over and over and over again that he is greater. And for us to remember that he is an example of our Heavenly Father, that ultimately he will always, he is always a God of love. He is an, always a God of serving and trying to help us to become more like him because we see that in the express character of his essence through the Savior. Is a reminder when you were talking about maybe in some Christian circles that we may not all see the nature of God the same. We may some people may look at that Old Testament and go, there will be great punishment for this. Um, what a great blessing to have Christ come and show us the way and that he is the way. And isn't that part of like what is making, like interestingly when people think that, like Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. He is. And so one of the things that we're seeing here is that to me, some of the things in the Old Testament, this vengeful God that people often think of, and sort of maybe going back a couple weeks where I was trying to kind of square this like loving, kind, compassionate, weeping Christ, like that he will weep for our suffering with also like the vengeful God that we're told will come before the second coming is... Like I think of the example, what we covered earlier this year in Come Follow Me, where the Savior comes to cleanse the temple. And I think that that perspective of that experience helps me to understand both parts of the Savior, I guess, or both parts of the nature of divinity and how having that boundary and that correction is part of God's nature just as the loving kindness is, but that ultimately, if you had to say one is the foundation of the other, love, 100%, is -hmm. the foundation of everything that follows, even that correction, which is needed, that it may seem very harsh from our perspective right now, but the Savior is seeing through a much wider lens, a much wider perspective than we are, and he sees where he needs to get us, and if it means holding really tight boundaries right now to get us ultimately eternally where he wants us, then I trust his judgment. Right. And so there are eternal principles and God is God because of his ability to, to use eternal principles. And there's consequences to that. And there is, um, as president Nelson says, truth is truth. God will not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There will be, consequences to your actions and I think Paul does such an excellent job of showing how that that worked with um, the Israelites in the wilderness and how it works with Christ coming and so 
I think we've kind of set up what's about to happen. Specifically in chapter one, he goes on to talk about things that may um, take um, steep traditions and explain how, how Christ is greater than the angels. Angels were, you know, there in the Garden of Eden and they were given roles and they were given that revelation that angels have had important work to do. And he's, and he's stating, and Christ is much greater than these angels. They aren't, they aren't one that supersedes the other because Christ came down and condescended as deity to come to earth. That was a condescension for him. Uh, it doesn't mean that that time when he came to the earth, where he says in chapter 2, verse um, 9, that um, he came down to, to earth and, he came, well, he came below the angels for a little bit, stating he's come down to earth, but he is still deity, even though it may look like he's a little lower than the angels, he's not. And so he had to take a long time to just kind of clarify some of these things for them because, again, they are steeped in this tradition and help them discern how it is they are supposed to understand how Christ has really come as the Prince of Peace. And he talks, he continues talking on about how we can become like God because Christ has come and because he has descended below it all. And because he has suffered and he died and he and all these things that his crown of glory is there for us and that he has now become the captain of us all. That scripture really stood out to me, Michelle. Did you get to chapter two, verse? So I'm going to go ahead and start reading in chapter two, verses nine and 10 and 11. It says that Jesus came down. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and through whom all things exist in bringing many sons and daughters to glory should make the prince of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who makes holy and those who have been made holy all have one origin, and so he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I really enjoyed those, those scriptures. And I think it's interesting in verse 10, your um, translation reads the prince of their salvation and mine reads the captain of their salvation. And I think each have their own really beautiful imagery that can go along with that. When I see captain, I almost think of the captain of the ship. And um, with these traditions or the direction that these people who were, in many cases, genuinely dedicated to following what they thought the, that God wanted for them. And now I think Paul is trying to redirect them in following the captain where the captain is leading the ship. And, and, or the, so the captain of their salvation, the prince of their salvation, the prince of peace that he became, and it says perfect through suffering here, which we know means complete through sufferings. And isn't it interesting that he has to spend so much time talking about how Christ is deity, but he has come down here um, to be our captain. And that this is something that really had to happen. These Jews were kind of mixed up Christ's first coming and his second coming together. And so when he, when he came, a lot of the Jews were expecting someone to come to free them from oppression, literally with the angels and the conquering, because they've been told this, as we can see in, in the Old Testament many times that he would come and he did come and he did free them from oppression. 
and he did restore power through love, but it is the inverse of what our world values. It is the freedom from the power of death of Satan, of sin, of all the things that truly bring us down in this life. And so they saw him more as this military conqueror. And when he came, these converted Christians understood that concept on some level. And he's reminding them, stop doubting your, your faith. You know this. He had to come down and he came down with the power to do whatever he wanted because he was God. And yet he chose to suffer like us. He chose to have the experiences we chose um, or we have to experience. It, it's interesting to think of Christ when you really think of how he condescended to be like us and is nothing like us. How incomprehensible that is when you really start registering it. But just to stop and take maybe specifically what they're talking about here, what sufferings did Jesus Christ do before the Garden of Gethsemane to help him know what the human experience was like? We know the temptations of Christ. Well, and I think as you've been talking, that <clears throat> concept that we that, that I brought up earlier of intimacy just keeps standing out in my mind, that how the Savior became the author of our salvation, how he rescued us is so intimate. Um and in fact, I don't know, now might be a good time to bring up this quote. It's from, always a good time for it's, that quote. Yeah, it's it's always a good time. There was um, Chiko Okazaki. She um, shared this experience about the atonement is an individual experience. And I think that this, um, the way that she phrased I mean, I just love her in general. But the way that she phrased it, I think, really speaks to this. She's saying it way more eloquently than I can about the intimacy of the Savior's experience. He is not standing from afar and bringing about miracles on the earth, he came to earth to be among us, to experience what we've experienced, even though he didn't have to. He was perfect. He didn't have to have the experience of mortality other than to willingly follow what the Father's plan was for him. And before you read this, I'm wondering, does this say the same in yours? In, chap in verse 11, he said, he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I think so much of our shame sometimes is caught up in maybe the act, but thinking, you know, if anybody knew how I got there, I mean, it's not like I intentionally got there making a bad decision. We inherently probably don't go around going, you know, I want to wake up and do something really offensive or, but he understands every bit of that. How did you get where you you went today how did you experience that so I really love that he goes I'm not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters and that through actually through his understanding of that the intimacy comes to where he feels you're that you're truly family okay so this reminds me of this experience that I had I was working through something that I needed to give to the savior and it was a healing experience from a trauma and I was holding on to it and I and I knew that the savior could carry it for me but I didn't want him to and that sounds weird but like I love him and I honor him and he's perfect and he's so pure and so good that I didn't want him to carry something so awful like it was I don't know if shame is the right word because maybe there was some of that there but it was more like out of my awareness of his glory and his purity and his goodness I didn't even want that to be something that was 
given to him. Like, of all the people who would have to carry that, why should he be carrying that? Like, he's so amazing and good. And it was such a beautiful experience for me to recognize he already has. He already knows that experience. He's already felt it. And me allowing him to carry it opens up my side of the connection with him because he already was feeling the weight and all the all the effects of what I was like so reluctant to what felt like maybe foist it upon him. And maybe that is a decent transition into this quote. She says, we talk in great generalities about the sins of humankind, about the suffering of the entire human family, but we don't experience pain in generalities. We experience it individually. That means he knows what it felt like when your mother died of cancer, how it was for your mother, how it still is for you. He knows what it felt like to lose the student body election. He knows that moment when the brakes locked and the car started to skid. He experienced the slave ship sailing from Ghana toward Virginia. He experienced the gas chambers at Dachau. Okay. He experienced napalm in Vietnam. He knows about drug addiction and alcoholism. And let me go further. There is nothing you have experienced as a woman that he does not also know and recognize. On a profound level, he understands the hunger to hold your baby that sustains you through pregnancy. He understands both the physical pain of giving birth and the immense joy. He knows about PMS and cramps and menopause. He understands about rape and infertility and abortion. His last recorded words to his disciples were, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. He understands your mother pain when your five-year-old leaves for kindergarten, when a bully picks on your fifth grader, when your daughter calls to say that the new baby has Down syndrome. He knows your mother rage when a trusted babysitter sexually abuses your two-year-old, when someone gives your 13-year-old drugs, when someone seduces your 17-year-old. He knows the pain you live with when you come home to a quiet apartment where the only children are visitors, when you hear that your former husband and his new wife were sealed in the temple last week, when your 50th wedding anniversary rolls around and your husband has been dead for two years. He knows all that. He's been there. He's been lower than all that. He's not waiting for us to be perfect. Perfect people don't need a savior. He came to save his people in their imperfections. He is the Lord of the living, and the living make mistakes. He's not embarrassed by us, angry at us, or shocked. He wants us in our brokenness, in our unhappiness, in our guilt, in and our grief. Did you want for me? Aim, well, actually, the end is nice. It talks about how Christ brings light to everyone and that we fundamentally need that. And I really liked that part, too. But thank you for reading that, because I was certain that if I read it, I would cry. So. Yes, and our goal you is for you not to have to cry this two week. Two weeks in a row. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, and if you want to talk about intimacy, that is just, I think we could just end our podcast now and just, that's, that is what intimacy looks like for me, is to know that he knows the, the real truth there. And, and it's human nature to do so the big word is anthropomorphize we throughout history have taken things that we don't understand and try to make it more anthro personable more like a person and trying to understand that and christ did condescend and come here 
But he also, in the Garden of Gethsemane, took upon the sins of the world and he understands everything. And I, as a person, we are not like that. That is not something that we can do. And yet, because he's done that, all of his grace is sufficient for us. It is because of that and that it's, we have. And it's so beautiful because part of what makes it this intimate relationship is that he can understand in a way that no other human can understand. Like the percentage of people in the world that have even been witness to some of these experiences that Sister Okazaki references is small, right? For an individual person, if I were to plot myself into one of those statements that she made, the people that even know that I've experienced that is small. The people that have personally witnessed me in my raw vulnerability process that experience much smaller perhaps one or two I mean really small but how many of even that small group truly knows how it feels to experience what that did with my like the whole experience the savior he's the one he's always the one yeah he is the way and and that's why he's really emphasizing here that he came down to free us from the slavery of sin and not to help the angels, which they really appreciate the angels, so we're reasoning, but the descendants of Abraham. And they know that they are the descendants of Abraham. We know that we are the descendants of Abraham. And then he says, Christ, because he's experienced this, he is your new faithful high priest in the things of God. He has genuinely experienced this, and he is the new sacrifice. So let's just talk about the temple for the Jews. Because there are always parallels with us. So the high priest, there was one high priest. And Yom Kippur, which means Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would go in and he would offer a sacrifice for the Israelites on behalf of the Israelites for all their sins. This is something they did every year. This was a big tradition. This was a big deal. This has unified their society. And yet now Christ came. Yom Kippur is not doesn't have any value. Christ is the sacrifice now. Christ has rented the veil of the temple. So literally the a high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, which there was a veil, and he would do the sacrifice. But we know that actually when Christ was crucified on the cross, the, the veil of the temple was rent in a very realistic, symbolic gesture of how that is no longer necessary at all. And so he's He's pointing this out again, that Jesus Christ has come. And because of that, we now can enter the presence of God. And so this is where it gets interesting with um, the references to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and the law and, and Moses and how they need to give that up. And so let's kind of break that down too a little bit. And before we jump into that part, which I'll let you jump back in, I also loved the visual when we're talking about that veil and the temple being rent. Many levels of symbolism yes. there. But one of the things that I always love is this idea that part of what that veil is rending signifies is that our separation from God can now be at an end because the Savior is our intermediary. He's our connection. He's our bridge to get from here back to God. Well, let's talk about the literal... Um, nature of what you just said that is what he's been teaching the Israelites in the wilderness that was what he was doing and we've touched on this a little bit before you'll be happy 
that we get to revisit it because he says, okay, Moses, he was a, he was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. They, the Jews love Moses. He took them out of um, bondage and freed them and took them to the promised land. But we all know Jehovah is the one that really did it. He was just the mouthpiece for him, right? And so he was doing what Christ asked him to do. And they go into the, to the wilderness. They wander. And Heavenly Father says, okay, I'm going to let them come into my presence. I'm going to give them the opportunity to... Um, be in this holy order where they can see me face to face. And the Israelites go, excuse me, what, huh? See, see Heavenly Father face to face. That created so much fear in them that they said, no, Moses, go up and ask him how we can like do something not as scary as that. It's said that, you know, they were in the desert. We're now in chapter 3, verse 9, where your ancestors tested me and saw my works for 40 years. Mm -hmm. Instead of ever taking up my offer of being able to be here face to face with me, you chose to wander for 40 years. Therefore, I'm going to say, and I like how just before he says that, he says, and harden not your hearts. <laughs> right. And he says they always wander in, in their heart. Mm -hmm. So after that, then he, the next verse says they wander in their heart. They do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter into my rest. He said, I was trying to let you do this, but you guys kept choosing a different path. I wanted to give you this, and you chose this. So this God of the Old Testament that looks so vengeful, he's like, well, I would have given you the path, and when I offered it to you, you asked for something different. And because of that, what happened was, the Aaronic priesthood was given to them. They had the option of the ministering of angels, and apparently they really loved the angels, so that's nice. But he wanted to give them more. He wanted to give them the Melchizedek priesthood. He wanted to give them the opportunity to be in the, whole, the order of the Holy Son. But they, want, they chose to wander for 40 years. We have this option. Anyone that wants to be an endowed member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to receive an endowment from God to be able to participate in that work, to be able to at some point receive the Holy of Holies and see God face to face, he has given us that opportunity. We can choose to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. We always have that option. Which in some ways is like I think in our day, um, we see it maybe less as a wilderness, but more as like, th this is what we know. like. This is what I have experience with and this is what I know and stepping outside of that, whether it is stepping into um, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ or whether it's even as members of the church with some of these changes you alluded to at the beginning, like, well, this is what I know and we've been taught this and this is what works. So, whoa, we're jumping into this whole other thing and I question it and I'm not sure if you thought this through, but is this really what we should be doing? And I almost wonder if there was some of that same thought process going on with the Israelites in Moses' day. Right. And I wish I could bring up um, the brother of Jared and the fear he had of what it would be like to really see Heavenly Father. I am certain that people are like, 
I'm much more comfortable in this realm right here, right? The idea of actually seeing God is, is intimidating. It is very different. But he is telling you that because Christ came, you have the opportunity to become partners with Christ. Okay, but who gives us the fear? Like, I think that that's, like, just jumped into my mind. Like, I think that you're right that that is something that, because there's a difference between, like, honor and respect and recognition of God's glory and having actual fear of him. And what we've been learning and talking about so much about the nature of God and our Savior is that love is the undergirding element to everything with God. So what have we to fear and where does that fear come from? Right. And and we talk about fear not coming from God. We know it comes from Satan, but we also talked about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so I think there's people that are just fearful, right? And then there's the people that work out their salvation with fear and trembling and they don't they don't want the bomb to go off, right? They want to do what Heavenly Father wants them to. And Heavenly Father is telling them, I'm giving you everything. You, there isn't a bomb, there isn't the code to the bomb going off where you're like, ooh, if I snip the red wire, it might go off. Or if I slip, snip the blue wire, it might go off. He's saying, here are the instructions. Why don't you actually live all of it and embrace it and really give your will over to me? No, I, yes. Because that's what he talks about next. He talks about coming to the rest of the Lord. In the, in the, after the 40 years, the rest was the promised land and Joshua gave them the promised land. And that is what they got because that is what they wanted. And the promised land was great, but he's like, okay, but if you ever want more, let me know. But the promised land for us can be resting in the Lord in the fullness of his glory, that we can become yoked with him and be part of his glory that our light can be part of this light that shines in the glory of God and that that we can receive peace and strength through God continuously as the rest that he promises here. Right. So we're referencing in chapter 4 when we're speaking about this rest. And I also really enjoyed, like in verse 10, as we're speaking about the rest, I thought we're part of that rest comes because we're focusing on God's work and not our own that that is actually far more restful and less stressful because we know that God has it all figured out. So we're just joining in with this perfectly orchestrated vision and plan as opposed to our just white knuckling, hoping that this plan that we have for our life or for whatever we're putting in front of us, that that's going to work out because we don't know if it's going to work out, but we know that God's plan will work out. So it's so much more restful to be participating in his plan than our own. And I think it's interesting that you chose um, verse 10 for that because he's stating that because Joshua, um, because you guys didn't want me to just have you, because you hardened your hearts is what it says in these verses. I gave you the promised land and I gave you the Sabbath to rest. And they took that very seriously. The one day of the week, right? Where they said, we will come into your presence and rest with you. Um, it's just interesting that all this symbolism has been going on for thousands of years. That Heavenly Father, that Christ has given us, and that Jehovah and the, the God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that all these dispensations, he's giving them the same thing for what they want in that dispensation and what they need in that dispensation and what they can have in that dispensation. And we know that our dispensation is the fullness of times. And we have the fullness of the gospel and the 
consequently can have the fullness of his glory because we have actually been given it in this dispensation. So part of what I think of when I think of rest and when you connect it with the Sabbath day being a day of rest and these Israelites being a day of, you know, entering into the rest of not wandering in the wilderness anymore and our own desire to have that rest. Maybe I just like the word rest because I really like sleep and wish I had more of it. But I, to, to me, I connect rest with being reconciled to God mm-hmm. and that when we are reconciled to God, that that is restful to our soul because we feel connected, complete. We're in a state that is at peace, I think. Mm -hmm. And so, and is that not, I think part of what the Sabbath day is for is a day to become reconciled again to God because we have to do that on an ongoing basis. Hence the sacrament, right? All of these things that will enable us to really focus our attention to being reconnected to God and that to me, it's more about the act of reconciling and less about stopping doing other things. Well, that's in, that's an interesting point. As you say that, I think about the scriptures that say, come unto him, um, for you shall find rest unto your soul, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And what does that mean? Um, and as you were speaking, I thought more of the yoke. Because we know that we don't stop working. I mean, Christ's glory is to bring to pass the immortality, eternal life of a man. We don't do that by sitting on the couch. But there's peace that comes when you know that you are doing the Lord's work as opposed to you coming up with all this stuff. And he will literally make you equal to any task and give you what you need. And his grace is sufficient. But I think about being in a yoke, if you've ever been on trek or you've seen or you've seen oxen pull a cart, I think of my personal experience on trek with these oxen pulling a cart because as somebody that was helping youth pull pull a cart that was heavy, when you were in the yoke, you wouldn't put a six foot four person with a five foot two five foot two person. That tension is very hard on both everybody participating but it's not how you you evenly yoke your cart because of where your hand positioning normally would be everything about it's wrong it's this discrepancy of the strength this discrepancy of the height it's this discrepancy they aren't pulling together you put people that are similar kind of in the yoke together and we already know christ comes to us where we're at and so that rest comes when the tension's gone when your will is aligned and Christ and you are yoked together, that he knows exactly where you're at and he knows exactly how to use him to pull his weight of what he wants to be done. And so I like that concept of rest. There's so much more rest in knowing who you are, knowing what you need to do and knowing what the Lord wants you to do and knowing that the Lord will make you able to do anything that he's asked you to do. And that's where rest comes to me. And honestly, like... Like as you're bringing back Trek, I've had the opportunity to go on Trek a couple times as a leader. And there is a relief that comes when that uh, that support of somebody steps in to pull. Like I'm thinking of the women's pull that we did. So this was like six years ago maybe. Mm-hmm. And there really was a section. We had an unusually small group. Like I think I had four girls and myself and three of the girls were like not 14 yet pulling 
So, I mean, sometimes these things are not actually that difficult, but in this case, it was actually really hard. We were going up a hill and it was really hard. And I remember, like, I, like this sounds so cheesy, but I literally wept when the boys came and stepped into the pulling bar and started to pull along with us. And it was such a restful, like it was such a relief and we're still moving, we're still doing all the things. And yet, like that visual is very easy for me to make that comparison to what the Savior does for us. Well, and also I think what you're describing is women that were pulling and it was getting to the point where it was too hard and a legion of angels were sent to you, which I think happens all the time if we are doing the Lord's work. And I think we feel that because that's what I pictured as you were talking. So I know it's been my experience that when I can turn things over to the Lord that in a time of need specifically, he will help me, which I think is what we get in chapter four, verse 15, when we talk about Jesus Christ being the great high priest in verses 15 and 16, I think one of my favorite verses Mm. this time around was 16. Oh, same. I have it like in bold. Because I think that's specifically what we're kind of talking about here. In 15, it says, We do not have a high priest that cannot be influenced by our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things, just as we are, but without sin. If we think about Christ, um, even aside from the Garden of Gethsemane, and then literally um, saying the thing that I, I appreciate, one of the many things about the Savior's example is that in his greatest time of trepidation, he says, not my will, be, but thy be done. And that, in his greatest fear, he turned his faith to, to God. That's a beautiful example. Yes. And so um, clearly he was tempted. Clearly he experienced just our weaknesses. But he even, even um, recognized that as he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he had Satan come to him. And I just think if we think about him not as a person, but as deity, having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he chose to be like us then too. Satan says, you know, turn these stones into food. You know you're hungry. And he knew he could do it. He said, jump off from this building. You you are about to sacrifice everything for all these people of this world. Why don't you just get one last chance for the angels to prove that heaven is right here with you? Don't worry about it. He knew he could do that. And, and Satan says, just take all the riches of these world. They're yours. All of these are temptations that we literally experience. We want to have instant gratification in physical needs. We want to have instant gratification in our spiritual needs. We want to have angels just come scoop us down and save us. That does not happen all the time. And we see the riches of the world and think, couldn't that just solve all my problems? He has been there. And so he says, he's done all this, but without any sin. And therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace grace to help us in our times of need. So because we know that the Savior has suffered and gone below it all so that we can be raised up, we can have the confidence to approach him in prayer boldly and know that he will give us his grace in times of need. I was going to say, and you just brought in that word. I just want to read the King James Version. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
And I just love that stood out to me so strongly. Come boldly. The Savior is inviting us. Come boldly. Whatever it may be, I'm not ashamed. I'm here. And we know through Jesus Christ, his guidance and directions, because he knows us, because he's experienced that, because according to the flesh, he has learned how to succor his people according to their infirmities. He will come in and he will specifically, individually help each of us with whatever it is that we need. And so this is our example that Christ has come. Consequently, we can be priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I actually skipped ahead to see chapter 7 is about the Melchizedek priesthood. So we get this two-part thing today. It's like a cliffhanger. I know. It's so exciting. But... um, Christ has learned all obedience from the things that he suffered. And I think that's what I really appreciated reading this is to think that what was it that Christ chose to do when Satan tempted him because he knew he needed to understand us is that in that suffering is when your, your obedience makes you more like Christ. We all want that suffering to just be taken away instantly. And Christ knew that he could do it, but he knew not to do it so that he could understand us and understand what that feels like. And to trust in and to follow and to love the Savior and God in our times of suffering is much more challenging and truly a test of our obedience than something that isn't hard for us. When we have something that we're asked to do and it's easy for us, awesome. Like, that's great. But is that really helping us to understand who we are and the divinity within us in the same way as our willingness to follow God when it's something that is fearful or um, maybe doesn't feel like it intuitively makes sense? I mean, I've had the experience before where I got a prompting and I struggled with it for like four days because I didn't want to do it. <laughs> like, I really didn't want to do it. And it was funny after a day, my husband was like, what's going on? And I said, oh, Heavenly Father just told me to do something and I'm not really sure I want to do it. And I thought, I never thought I would say that before. <laughs> like, I never thought that I'd be like, I know that that's what Heavenly Father wants me to do. And yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm in on that one. But that wrestle taught me something big which was because in the end like I'll take the cliffhanger away I did it and the peace that I felt and the joy and it worked out far greater than I could have ever imagined but like the struggle is real I did not want to do it the struggle is real and it's the obedience through the suffering that is what makes us more like Christ and so I love that I feel like we should kind of transition into chapter six and the ending through that, because that is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you know, when God wants you to do something, choose to do it. He's asking you. He's, he doesn't want it. He says, you now need milk, not solid food. He wants to give you this solid food. He was telling them, please mature, please mature into your spiritual maturity, climb that mountain and receive the gospel. Know that God is giving you things to do and receive them. If you've received the temple endowment, recognize what a huge blessing that is and step through the veil of the Holy of Holies. 
I'm going with all the symbolism I'm like, right wow. in front of me. <laughs> this is like, I like how we were going in to- two totally different it's directions on that. It's literally right here it in front of me. It is literally right there. But it's saying, this is God's promise to you. Previously, only the high priest could symbolically enter the presence of God. But Christ came so that all of us can. That the seed of Abraham, this is the promise. I will bless you and I will multiply you because you have been obedient in your suffering. Abraham says, this is what he ends with. Abraham waited a hundred years and was obedient in his suffering. And that is why he receives all these blessings. This is an unchangeable nature of God's will and that, that we are the heirs of this promise. And so he encourages us to step into the role of the Melchizedek priesthood and anchors our anchor our souls into that Melchizedek priesthood forever. And that's our cliffhanger for next week. Right. Although I'm going to interrupt and say, I think that like one of the major things that one of the major themes that we've uncovered here is that the savior has really unlocked rent the veil, made it possible for us to be able to have that direct connection to God. I really love at the end of verse six. So at the very end of our lesson, like what really stood out to me was hope because I feel like hope is the bridge that gets us from who we are and where we are right now to the point where we will be able to stand before God and have that pure connection because most of us aren't going to be there today, like literally today. And so what is the bridge? What is the connection between here and there as we're striving and moving forward? And I think it's hope. And so I'm just going to read in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 6 in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that within the veil. And I just like love so much of that as we're talking about all of these things. I do have a hope in my savior. I have a a sure, like, I mean, I guess sure hope feels really strong, but I trust him and I have faith and I feel like as I'm learning and growing and understanding what he has done for us, that that hope is an anchor for me because it's the bridge between where I am in this messy middle of mortality and where I know that he's taking me. Amen. I love it. I love that Christ is the anchor for our soul. And so... I look forward to hearing the rest of Hebrews next week. Well, yeah, now I, now I already know a little bit to get me started next week. All right. Okay. Thank you, Laura.